We are in Esther chapter 6 and 7 today, the last verse of chapter 6, all chapter 7. As is our tradition in this series, we're inviting up a member of our congregation to read. So I have asked my father to come and read through this passage. I knew that would get an awe. That's not why I did it. But. Yeah, he asked me last night, so. <laughs> Sorry, dude. <laughs> While they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. So the king and Haman went in to the feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he? Who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe and enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine, as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word, just for uh, the opportunity we have today to to learn from what you've given us and ask that you'd bring clarity uh, of of thought, that you'd bring clarity in our hearts, Lord, that we would clear a space for you to to do work, Holy Spirit. So we ask for that this morning. Uh, Work through me. Help me to get out of the way so that your word may go forth unabated. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, a couple housekeeping things. If you have a phone and you are not using that thing, if you can put that on Do Not Disturb, which is this half moon. Last time I didn't explain it, it says half moon on Apple iPhones. If you could put that on Do Not Disturb, just so that we can all be here and present together as we worship God uh, through his word. Esther, chapter 6. Where this, this interesting ending to this story, uh, kind of ironic, uh, kind of intense, if, if we've been following the story at all, uh, just to see how exactly this ends and how God uses Esther in this circumstance to bring forth his plan and his purposes. Uh, we, we saw back in Esther 5 that, that Esther's cousin Mordecai has, uh, has warned her, essentially, saying, Look, if you don't act, God is going to bring forth uh, 
he's going to raise up somebody else and he's going to save his people still. But maybe God's put you here for such a time as this. And we see this come to fruition here in chapter 7 that that this is why God had Esther in this situation. Uh, That it might not have been Esther's dream situation. It might not have been what she had envisioned for her future or what she had desired for herself. But it's exactly what God had planned. And so we see this story come to its conclusion that God has planned this and God has purposed this to bring about his glory for his purposes and for our good. I have on the top of your notes there, it says, even in the bleakest of circumstances, God is executing his plan. Even in the bleakest of circumstances, God is executing his plan. Point number one in your notes, it says, the request. Esther reveals Haman's plans and is used by God to help her people. The request, Esther reveals Haman's plans and is used by God to execute. Oh, sorry, it's used by God to help her people. Um, Not execute her people. While they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived. They hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. So the king and Haman went into the feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, The king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request, for we have been sold. I and my people to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I I would have been silent. For our affliction is not compared with a loss to the king. This is Hester's request to the king. You'll notice a few things happen here as we, as we approach this section in Esther 7. One thing that the, the writer of Esther is trying to do is trying to get us to see Esther's title, her royalty, her rank. It, it starts to say Queen Esther, starting in chapter 7. And even the king Ahasuerus refers to her as Queen Esther yet again. We see that she has now a royal position in the palace, that she is revered and respected. It's kind of interesting how this, this scene is kind of hurried, as Haman seems to be running late to this feast. What's happened to Haman with having to exalt Mordecai and having to go through this situation where he's basically giving somebody he detests uh, attention and praise, he, he's, his mind is not there, and he's not present, and he might be venting with some of his friends or or trying just to like gather himself, and now he's already late to this next feast. He's, he, they, it says they hurried. The king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring him into the feast that Esther had prepared. Not going to be real great on his record if he's running late to a feast that the king and queen have prepared. Um, not really reflecting super well. Some of you are, are fearful of running late to things that kings and queens don't prepare. Imagine if a king or queen prepared this, and now Haman is running late. So it says the king and Haman went into the feast with Queen Esther. A couple of things about this feast. Uh, it says that they, what they were doing was drinking wine. It's, it's unlikely that this was merely just drinking wine. Um, that the feast was much bigger than just that. Uh, we don't know exactly what was in the feast, what happened around it, but we, we do know that it wasn't merely just they came to drink wine and have wine together. Uh, we do know that that was basically the purpose of it. Uh, but it's interesting. We've seen this scene similarly already in Esther 5, where we saw Esther uh, have a meal with Haman and the king. And, and uh, this is where 
the king asked the same request. What, what, what do you request, Queen Esther? And it will be given to you, even, even to the half of my kingdom. And he repeats that request again here. And now Esther has played a couple of things super well. Number one, she's been patient, which is going to play really well with the king. She's been patient, and so now she has a little bit more rapport. She's not just here asking for things. There's something serious. There's something on her mind, on her heart. And she's earned a little bit of credit with the king. So she's been patient. Uh, number two, she's, she's seen as honored. Uh, he, she's the king's favorite wife. Um, and she is put in this position where she's the queen and being invited to these, to these feasts. And, and King Ahasuerus is basically saying, now whatever you ask, let me know and I'll, I'll try to give it to you. If Esther remembers any of the history, when we opened this book, Queen Vashti came in and uh, was basically exiled for, for not appealing to the king or doing exactly what the king wanted. And now Queen Esther comes into a situation where she needs to listen to the king. Uh, she needs to respect the king. Otherwise, she could be exiled or worse, she could be killed. Uh, but now she's at a point where her people, her people are at stake. The people's lives are at stake. So Esther comes in faithfully on behalf of her people for the glory of God. The king asks Esther her request, and, and she lists it. She kind of walks through again. The king doesn't know that Esther is Jewish at this point, and so the king's about to be revealed some new information. Uh, but Esther, Esther walks into this situation ready to reveal to the king this information, ready to give it to him, because it's, it's important for her people. Esther's request is that her people be saved. Her request is that, that the Jews be, be saved. And, and the way that she phrases it is interesting, but I want to focus on that request really quickly. Esther's request is a physical request. Her people are being destroyed or going to be killed physically. Now, if we, if we remember Paul's epistles in the New Testament, we see that, like, what's going to happen if we get killed? We're going to end up in heaven with Jesus. It's not, it's not really the end of the world for us as Christians. Um, I guess it would be the end of the world. But the, the analogy works where it's not the, it's not the end. Uh, we, we go to a better place, essentially. We're, we're in paradise with Jesus. And so maybe Esther's request for the physical saving of her people should be echoed by us for the spiritual saving of people on this planet. We see Esther come forward and, and boldly proclaim to this king, look, my people are dying, and this is I'm going to do everything that I can to save them. As Christians on this planet, we should look around to people who are in danger of going to hell and say, look, we should do everything that we can to save these people. Not worried about what people are going to say about us, not worried about what people are going to do to us, not fearful that we're going to get rejected, but boldly come forth and say, look, God's wrath is coming. And that's, that's a theme that Jesus shares as he's sharing the gospel. The, the kingdom of God is coming. Judgment day is coming. So repent and believe. Because there will come a day where you stand before God's throne in judgment. And despite your religiosity, despite people's religiosity and their, their continued going to church and their doing of good things, none of that's what saves them. And as Christians, we have in our back pocket exactly what saves them. And so we have this gospel that we can share with people to say, like Esther said to the king, people 
are going to be destroyed. They are going to be annihilated. Judgment is coming. But we know the good news. We know the solution. God's placed us in these situations to bring that good news, to bring that solution, to save people for whom he has died. The story continues. It says, King Ahasuerus says, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you, and what is your request? Even to half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Esther, in a position where she gets to ask the king something, she, she again does so respectfully. If I found favor in your sight, O king, if it pleases the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. At this point, King Ahasuerus has no idea where this is going. She's basically saying, let my life be granted to me. Please, please save my life. This is something you can do. And he's probably like, what in the world is she talking about? I can save your life. Why is it in danger? And she jumps forward to say, we have been sold. Do you remember what the, uh, what the, the edict was? Was it they were sold into slavery? No, they weren't sold into slavery. What had happened was that they had been ordered to be annihilated, killed, destroyed. The words that Esther uses here in a second are reflecting those words of that original edict. The people haven't been sold as slaves. But Esther uses this language basically to appease the king and say, Look, King of Hasuerus, I know it was basically all your fault that you signed this without really thinking it through. But she's not going to say that. Um, very wisely, that's not exactly the language she wants to use in front of a king who can go like this and have her killed. Um, so she goes, we've been sold, which kind of takes it out of King Ahasuerus' hands and puts it in Haman's hands and says, um, somebody convinced you to sign this thing that was going to destroy all of my people. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed to be killed, and to be annihilated. Don't those three words basically say the same thing? So what, what the writer of Esther here, what Esther is saying, and the writer is trying to get us to, to uh, realize is this is a severe command that's been given down. The people are going to be killed. It's a heavy, it's a weighty thing, and it's really going to happen. They're going to be killed if we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. What she says to him is, if we had been sold into slavery, whatever. We would have gone through it. It's, we, we can get over it. It's slavery. Um, but she looks at him and says, that wouldn't have been compared to the loss to the king. Basically, the king's going to lose something. He's going to have to go back on his edict here. He's going to have to reverse it. But luckily... There's an escape goat here named Haman that they're going to rightfully execute in a minute here. Spoiler alert. Um, she said she would have been silent, for it wouldn't have been compared with the loss to the king. She would have endured suffering for the sake of this earthly king, she and her people. Now, when the king hears that his favorite wife has been sold and her people are going to be destroyed, and, and her as well, he basically needs to act, and he's going to act quickly. We're going to see in this next section the anger. The anger is your blank. And it says, after hearing the plan, Ahasuerus responds in anger toward Haman. After hearing the plan, Ahasuerus responds in anger toward Haman. 
Esther's laid out this plan, laid out what's happened, and basically is hoping for, for the king to act in some way to save her people. She needs this to be done. Verse 5. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he, and where is he who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe and an enemy. Again, those words basically mean the same thing in English. This wicked Haman. Dun, dun, dun. (laughs) Then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. Well, yeah. Um, It says, And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther. For he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. The king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine, as Haman was falling on the couch where Queen Esther was. And the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. The king is angry, and rightfully so. They don't know yet who did this, and so Esther reveals, It was this wicked man, Haman. And like rightfully so, you have that music in the background. Dun, dun, dun. Um, and Haman's revealed, and you could just imagine... If he could have color in his face, it would turn red. And he'd be embarrassed, um, probably more embarrassed than any of you have ever been, as he realizes that he has just ordered the queen of the kingdom to be destroyed, and it's the king's favorite queen. He's lived his whole life to please the king. Everything he's done, he's trying to please the king, and also trying to get glory for himself. And at this point, he's basically done the thing to upset the king the most. And there's no going back. There's no arguing this back out. So Haman is stuck in this position where he's basically doomed. It says, um, Hazwares asks Esther, and Esther reveals this foe and this enemy, and Haman is terrified before the king and the queen. The king arises from from his wine drinking, it says... um, and goes out to the garden, basically to process his anger. Some of you have been there, where you know that in this situation, you probably shouldn't say anything, so you get up and leave, which is a much better thing than lashing out and responding in anger, unrightfully. Um, and so Ahasuerus basically goes to collect his thoughts and his mind in the garden, and tries to weigh through what exactly just happened. His most trusted servant has betrayed his favorite queen, and now he's he's... He's really angry. He's stuck in this position where he doesn't know exactly what to do yet. He goes out in the garden, and Haman does everything he can to plead for his life. He knows at this point, the king isn't going to listen to his requests. Uh, the queen doesn't really have any power or authority in this situation. It really is up to the king to say whether or not something's going to be done to Haman. So Haman goes to the queen and basically starts pleading for his life. We see that she's on this couch. Let me bring in a tiny bit of background for you. After these meals in this culture, they would often recline on a couch, which probably sounds pretty similar to our culture. After meals, (laughs) reclining on a couch. Not really much of a stretch there for you to understand that. The queen is reclining on a couch. And Haman comes basically at her feet begging for his life. Uh, you can imagine, uh, some, sometimes it's been written in history that uh, these people that would do this would be kissing the feet 
that they would be trying to entice somehow, save my life, somehow, please give me favor. That was appealing back then. I have, we have a puppy in my house, and she loves to lick feet, and it's not appealing. So don't, for whatever reason, if you have a request, don't kiss my feet. It's really weird. Um, so here, here's Haman, at the feet of Esther, which is very ironic if you look back through the story. What was Haman upset that Mordecai didn't do? Bow down to his feet and kiss his feet. And here's Esther, a Jew, having Haman bow down at her feet and kissing her feet. The great irony of this story is that everything that Haman had tried to execute on his own power, God has flipped on its head and basically said, no, no, it's not how this is going to work. That's not how this is going to happen. Haman's in this position, and uh, we see that he falls on the couch. We don't know exactly how this happened or what happened, um, because all the details we have are here. But it says he falls on the couch, and we can only imagine that he maybe had a little bit too much to drink or lost his balance somehow, but now he's like falling on the couch, and in this weirdly dramatic scene that you probably have in your head, he's on Esther, and the king comes in and is like, what the heck, you're going to assault my queen in my presence? Which, if you had touched the queen, the penalty was death. And now he has not only betrayed the queen and her people, and basically ordered her to be killed, which the penalty for that would probably be death. Now he's touched the queen in the presence of the king, for which the penalty would be death. So now, basically, he's going to be handed a double sentence to be put to death. Will you even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? King Ahasuerus is obviously emotional at this point. Um, he, maybe he's had a little bit to drink, but his execution and his sentence is right. This Haman is going to be put to death. He deserves to be put to death. If you're looking at your watch and you're wondering why I'm on the third point, we're going to camp a little bit after this. I need to finish this story for us to walk through this a little bit. You're not going to get out at 1030. <laughs> Some of you are like, places are still serving breakfast. We can get out of here and go. No. Um, so here, as the word left the mouth of the king, they, oh, actually, I need to come on this for a second. The word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Um, now, again, without the history, we're looking at this and we're seeing, oh, maybe the Persians cover the faces of people they're going to execute. Nowhere else in history is that written. So now we're at this point where it was a common practice for the Greeks and the Romans to do this, to cover the face of the person they're about to execute. Whatever the situation, this isn't necessarily normal, but it's right in this situation because they don't desire to see Haman's face anymore. The king is so disgusted with him that he needs to be put out of his presence. So even though this might not have been a normal practice, the king's like, we're done. We're done. Get out of here. You're not to be seen anymore. He covers his face and he goes. Point number three, the resolution. Haman's life faces an ironic ending. This is the crescendo of this book of Esther. This is the, the climax, what's happening, what's happened so far. We're going to deal with the edict in a few chapters after this uh, and what's going to happen with the aftermath of that and the king trying to walk that back. But everything that's happened has led up to this point. Haman and Mordecai fighting, the queen kicking Vashti out, Esther not knowing what to do in this situation. It's all come to its climax, its crescendo in these last two verses. Then 
Harbona, one of the eunuchs, which, by the way, if for some reason you memorized Esther chapter 1 and the list of the eunuchs who brought Queen Vashti out, Harbona was one of those. Harbona has been a faithful servant of the king this whole time. Been there, been a faithful eunuch, and the king trusts Harbona. That's a little bit important for you to know in this situation. Harbona is trusted by the king. Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, I have an idea. The gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king. Remember that. Remember he saved you. He's standing at Haman's house 50 cubits high. Great idea. This is a good brainstorming session where Harbona just comes up with the idea of the century. I have a good idea, king. Haman was going to hang Mordecai on these gallows 50 cubits high, which if you do the math is about 75 feet high. Pastor Ron talked about, we're not sure if that was literal, if that was a literal 75 feet, if it was just exaggerated to show the, the audacity that, that Haman has in the situation. Uh, point is, Haman built gallows, he's going to be hanged on them. And Harbona, one of the eunuchs, who if you read back through Esther, you'll notice Haman has been trying to like talk to these people and work with these people, and he has made zero friends. Shocking that he's trying to get all this attention and praise and glory for himself, and he's made no friends along the way. Weird how that works out. Uh, that's a little extra point for you to take home. If you seek glory and attention for yourself, you will make no friends. Cool. Point number three, the resolution. Haman's life faces an ironic ending. Resolution, Haman's life is an ironic ending. The king said, four words. Hang him on that. And so the sentence was given. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king was abated. Again, we talked about uh, when Pastor Ron went over the first time we saw these gallows, that it wasn't necessarily a hanging. It was more likely an impaling. And so... Haman is now impaled on these gallows that he exaggerated um, in order to put to shame anybody who rejected him. Uh, He's now being hanged on these gallows that were meant for his glory and for Mordecai's shame. And now he gets the shame and God gets the glory. Harbona's idea is that Haman be hanged on these gallows and the king hangs him on them. And so the story is resolved that this doom was going to come for the Jews, that they were going to be destroyed, annihilated. They were going to have genocide committed against them. And God uses this situation that seems so bleak for Esther to bring him glory and to work it out for his good walk through a couple of points in application. We see this story build up over time, and we see in the darkest hours of Esther's life, where she has been assigned a place to be a queen by winning a beauty contest that she didn't desire to enter, that she's been put in this position that she doesn't desire to be in. And her cousin Mordecai basically says, look, be faithful there. Maybe, just maybe you've been put in this situation for such a time as this. And so Esther 
listens to that advice wisely and is faithful in this position, and God uses her well to bring about the salvation of the, phys- the physical salvation of the Jews in this situation. There are so many of us in this room who are confused about the situations that God has put us in. You're not sure why things are happening the way they're happening. You're not sure why sickness has come, why deaths in family have come, why relationships are struggling. You're not sure why you're, you're struggling to make ends meet or, or whatever it may be. You're stuck in this situation and you don't know why. And I think as people, sometimes we get frustrated with, I want to know why. Just tell me why. That's a question we've been asking since we were like three years old. Why? 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 And it's a question we don't stop asking, and unfortunately we don't stop asking it of God. Why? Why? We get these little glimpses of our life. God has been actively working in the world since before its creation. And we get these little glimpses of of suffering or pain that's a result of sin, and we look to God and we say, why? Why is this happening? Ignorantly not knowing that maybe God is using this to redeem things for himself. Maybe God has a bigger purpose than just us, than just our minimal suffering, our temporary pain. Then maybe God's going to bring so many people to salvation through this story. And that's what Esther was at. Esther was in this position where she's like, why is this happening? I don't get it. And Mordecai says, this is why. God's put you in this situation for this occasion. God has brought you to this point for this. And Esther doesn't say, look, I don't want to offend anyone. I don't want to, let, you know, the king, he's, he's big and powerful. And the last queen, he exiled. And I don't want to be exiled. That sounds uncomfortable. So I'm just going to sit here and not do anything despite that. No, Esther in this situation where she's given her why, relies on God and basically says, look, I, I need to do this. This might be a scary calling. This might be a difficult thing, but she needs to do this. And so she reaches out to the king and says, save my people. And the king saves her people because of her boldness in this situation. We're in a culture, we're in a time period where we are scared to act with fear of offending somebody. Look, Esther had the biggest, rightest fear of offending Ahasuerus. She was going to step into his feast and say, you made a wrong edict, and you're going to exile my people. You're going to, you're going to kill my people. And she walked in and she did it. Esther, the Jewish girl who won a beauty contest, <laughs> saved the Jews. Not because of her own doing. Mordecai was right. God was going to raise somebody else up. But she walked into that situation and was able to be a faithful part of God's plan. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul's walking through this idea of the resurrection. And he's, he's relaying this to the Corinthians and youth. We're going to get to this in a, in a few weeks here. He's relaying this information to the Corinthians. And he's saying, look, this is what happens. This is what the resurrection means. This is what it implies If Jesus raised from the dead, and if you're here, you should believe that. If Jesus raised from the dead, that has major implications for our lives and for how we live it, for our boldness and for who we choose to offend. 
the gospel is offensive. And that's basically Paul's point in 1 Corinthians 15. And he ends this section, 1 Corinthians 15, if you want to turn there, I'd encourage you to. He ends this by walking through <laughs> verse 34. Not exactly the most encouraging verse, but I, I think that we need to hear it this morning. He ends in verse 34, this section. And he says, Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. I say this to your shame. Our responsibility to the truth of God, to the gospel, to the people of God, and to the kingdom of God is such that we cannot remain silent during injustices. That we cannot remain silent when people are like, I have no hope, I don't know where to turn, and they're not believers, and we have exactly the hope they need, and exactly where they should turn, and don't share it. Is there anything more hateful than that? To look at somebody in the face and say, well, good luck, I hope it gets better, and walk away. Meanwhile, in our back pocket, we have the greatest news of all. That, yes, suffering and pain are temporary, but they end. That there is hope of a renewed, redeemed creation. We have that. We ought to share it. As much as there's a responsibility for us, I want to also echo Mordecai's statement to Esther. That this isn't about us, and it's never been about us, that God is a God who is faithful. And we saw that in this story. We saw that in the resolution to this story. God was faithful to his people. Look, he made them a promise a long time before this. That he was going to be faithful to them. That he made this covenant with them. He would not forget them. And that he would be with them. And he held on to that promise. And we see the promise have lasting effects later on in, in the book of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, where Jesus comes. And through this line, God preserves the Savior. God preserves this. And he had this plan all along, and he brings it about. The preservation, the line of the Messiah. God was faithful to his people. He used Esther in this situation. He can use you in your situation. Just respond and react. Again, Mordecai's statement, if you don't act, help will arise from another place. But maybe, just maybe, this is the reason God has you in your situation. I wish I could sit with each of you and speak specifically into your situations and say, this is why God has you here. That why that you've been seeking, maybe you've been ignoring it because it's hard. Maybe you know the answer. Maybe you know why you're enduring suffering or why you're sitting with family members who are dying. And maybe it's hard to look at the why and say, God's using this to bring people to salvation. If you could sit with Ron and Susie and hear the stories of how people have been touched and impacted through their situation, I encourage you to do that. God uses difficult situations to bring about his glory and his purposes to further worship him. 
Somebody asked me as I came in this morning where I was going to go with the death of Haman. Is this a rejoicing matter? Is this a sorrowful manner matter? I want to I want to echo Ron's words from last week, Pastor Ron's words from last week that that this is okay. <laughs> the death of the wicked is okay. This is not something that we should um, turn away from and be like, oh, what a what a shameful thing that that Haman died. I wish that he could have lived longer and tortured more people. Uh, Haman dies, and that's okay. Proverbs eleven six. Interesting how how this death of Haman fulfills some proverbs. Proverbs reflect this. The righteousness of the upright delivers them, but the treacherous are taken captive by their lust. His desire for this, for this praise, for this glory, took him captive. He's taken captive by his lust. So what's the take on Haman's death? I want to say, on the one hand, this stinks for Haman. Uh, Obviously, he's dead. Um, Here's what I mean by that. I mean that Haman was around people who knew God. He had opportunities to know the truth, and he rejected God. He pushed him away. And so Haman is in hell. And that stinks. That's the understatement of the century. It's horrible. And so we should be sad for that. Like Saul's chasing David, and, and David hears that Saul dies. And the messenger's like, good news, Saul's dead. And David's like, how is that good news? <laughs> this man had an opportunity to know the Lord and rejected it. So Haman's dead. On the one hand, yes, good news. The wicked have perished. This is over. The oppression won't continue. On the other hand, we can feel for Haman and say, if only he would have received salvation. If only he would have turned. But he didn't. And so there's sorrow there, but there's rejoicing for the Jewish people that this difficulty This hard situation is over. I want to end a little bit by camping on this idea of your faithfulness in the midst of circumstances. God is always faithful. Uh, We see that in Timothy. God, if you are unfaithful, God will remain faithful for he cannot disown himself. So despite your lapse, despite your sinful desires and your sinful pursuits, It doesn't affect God's faithfulness. He's always going to bring about his plan. He's always going to redeem his people, work things together for good for those who love him. But you're going to miss out. You're going to miss out. Last time I taught, we talked about Matthew 5 through 7, and we saw this idea that that there's going to come a day where people are going to stand before God, and he's going to either say to them, well done, my good and faithful servant, or I never knew you. And there's going to be some people who will be like, what do you mean you never knew me? I was at church on Sundays, and I helped in Awana, and I was at Second Harvest. I was there, I was teaching kids. 
And God's going to look at them and say that none of that saved you. None of that's ever what saved you. None of that's ever been something that could save you. Where was your heart? Was it in complete service and surrender to God? Or did you just play church? Did you come on Sundays or to Awana or to teach the kids or to Second Harvest or whatever it may be for the show? Or did you come to serve God? We don't want to miss out on these opportunities that God has laid before our feet to bring him glory and worship. We don't want to take those and make those about us. That would be Haman. We want to take these situations, these opportunities, and and use them to further worship God. Use them to expand his kingdom. Not to make things about us, but to give him the glory that he rightfully deserves. We don't want to be Haman's in this situation. We want to be Esther. Not because she's great. Not because she did something phenomenal, but because she was faithful. The book's named after her, so it's hard not to exalt her sometimes. But God's the one who deserves the exaltation in this situation. God's the one who brought about his plan. God's the one who redeemed his people. God's the one who proved his faithfulness yet again. Esther was just a part of that, a pawn in the situation used by God to bring about his purposes for his glory and for our good. Esther was faithful. She was what a normal follower of God should be. Faithful. Placed in an extraordinary circumstance, I get that. Given an immense responsibility, I understand that. But she does not get the glory for this situation. God receives the glory for this situation. So the question looking back on this, on this resolution here is not merely, how can I be like Esther? Although there are traits of hers that you can take that would be beneficial to your walk with God. The question looking back on this is, how can I be an obedient servant of God where he's placed me? Whatever your situation is, how can you be faithful to God. This idea of faithfulness in our circumstances and in our assignments isn't merely an Old Testament thing. It's not something that we only see in Esther and we never see again. In fact, it happens in 1 Corinthians 7, 17, 21, and 24, if you want to write that down or turn there. Paul says this, and he's speaking about singleness and he's speaking about marriage, but the point stands. Paul says, let each person live the life that God has assigned to him to which God has called him. And he says, this is my rule in all the churches. Do you view your life as an assignment? Do you view your life as a calling? Or is that only for pastors? Is that only for missionaries? I want to tell you it's not. Biblically, it's not. Your life is an assignment by God. I echo this to the youth on Thursdays and on Sunday mornings in high school. You are not a junior member. You are not a smaller member. You are not an outside member of this church body. If you're here this Sunday morning, that means that God's assigned you here 
for a specific purpose and a specific reason. That means we need your faithfulness. Uh, I mean, like Mordecai says, God can rise it up from another place, but you've been put here for a reason. Do you view your life as an assignment as purposefully placed by God? Esther had to. Otherwise, thousands of people were going to die. Now, her assignment was probably a little more obvious than ours. But what is your assignment? If you're in high school or junior high, this is such an easy one to dismiss. You can hear this and be like, that's later when I become an adult. At 18, my assignment starts. Not true. Not at all true. In fact, part of your assignment is to be honoring of your father and your mother. Part of your assignment is to do your best work in school, to be a faithful Christ follower in relationships you've built at school. Now, if you're over 18, you're probably like, what is my assignment then? What has God given me? What, like Esther, am I supposed to reflect God's faithfulness in? Work, family, um, relationships you have with friends over time, your hobbies, Whatever it may be, these are things assigned to you by God, not accidents. You didn't accidentally end up in your job. You didn't just happen into it. God put you there. If you view your life as something that God put you in, your jobs, your your family, your relationships, God has assigned you there to be faithful to him. If you start viewing your life like this, it starts to have a different weight. My prayer is that we as Village Bible Church would not float through our lives and land on Sundays and be purposeful Sundays about worshiping God at 9.30 and being done at noon. My hope and prayer for us as Village Bible Church is that we would see worship as something that extends throughout the week. Church service is an opportunity for us to write down a game plan and execute it during the week. We have this plan in us that we are supposed to be faithful where God has put us. Families, relationships, work. That's your assignment from God. Maybe you need a Mordecai in your life to come up to you and say, maybe God has put you in this situation for such a time as this. You don't know the why, and that's frustrating sometimes. Esther got to see the why here. She got to see it play out in chapter 7. She got to be used by God as a hand to help save her people. And that's amazing. Sometimes we might never know the why. We might. We might not. We need to be content with that and trust that the God who created the universe, who's known about this plan since before he laid the foundations of the world, maybe, just maybe, has a better plan then our idea in our very few years of life, maybe he has a better plan. Might not make sense to you, but that's okay. You're not all-knowing, all-sufficient. You're not sovereign. Trust God with that. Trust that he's the sovereign one who knows what he's doing. We might not necessarily know the why. We might not end up seeing what happened, but... We can trust that God is faithful. Last story I want to tell, this is not going to be a shock to the youth, but Dietrich Bonhoeffer <laughs> was a faithful servant of God. He lived during the time of World War... I'm going to mess this up. 
too. Thank you. I always mess that up. History is not my thing. I try. I try. It's, it's Pastor Andrew's thing. Um, <laughs> World War II. Um, he lived during this time, and, and the Nazis had raised up, and he was a pastor. He was a theologian. And the Nazis rose up, and he was, he was faced with this situation where he didn't know whether to speak out against it and face death or to just try to raise up faithful ministers. And so he walked through his life with this, this dilemma. What, what do you do? And he, he ends up at this point where he, he pens this quote. He says, When faced with evil injustices, you don't just ignore it, but you drive a stake in the heart of it. You drive a stake into the wheel of injustice, and you, you try to wreck that thing. So he rose up. He had two attempts to assassinate Hitler, both of which failed. The second time, his plan was caught and found out. He was hanged for this plot to assassinate Hitler about two weeks before the camp was liberated. He was hanged. His last words were, this is the end, but the beginning for me. He knew his life purpose. He got to see the why. And although he didn't get to save the people, he knew that he was supposed to be faithful in that circumstance, in that situation. What is your situation? What is your circumstance? Are you comfortable? Are you content with not seeing the why? Can you trust God even if you don't get to see it? Let me pray. Lord God, thank you for your word for your truth, that you're a God who loves us enough to, to use us, Lord, that we get to be part of your plan, we get to be part of your purposes. Lord, I ask that we would be a faithful people, that we would follow after you, that we would glorify you and not ourselves. Lord, we praise you that you're faithful even when we're not. Lord, we are sinful human beings and we fail. Lord, we're so glad that you raise up help even when we do fail. Lord, thank you for this story, this reminder, this justice. Help us to live faithfully in our lives as well. In Jesus' name, amen.